And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman on this Monday. And I don't know. Lately, Bruce, this has kind of inadvertently turned into a basketball podcast, but March Madness has been so riveting. And in, and this week in particular, we want to get into the historic women's final four. I got completely drawn into the Caitlin Clark experience. Her game Friday night against South Carolina was amazing. Um, of course, tuned in for the championship. And apparently a lot of people did, too. Literally right before we started this recording this podcast, it comes out that 9.9 million people watched the women's championship game on ABC, the previous record. I mean, it's like several million higher than the the previous high since 2000 was 5.7 million in 2002. This was the first time it's been on ABC. For context, Stu, yeah. more viewers than both the Sugar Bowl and the orange bowl that's a, one of those games involved nick saban and alabama the other one involved tennessee and Dabo sweeney's clemson team what's really kind of crazy and i get it there was less comp there was you know it's a sunday afternoon in april compared to a college football saturday but even the biggest game of lsu season when they knocked off alabama this game got more over two almost three million more viewers you remember the Big 12 title game came down to the wire, went to overtime, playoff implications for TCU. More people watch this than that. More people watch this than the Pac-12 title game, the ACC title game, Notre Dame, USC, Ohio State, Penn State. And this one blows my mind. The Alabama, Texas A&M primetime CBS game that went right down to the final play. So all of which is to say we're bringing on our friend Lindsay Schnell from USA Today who has been covering women's college basketball. She's she's very connected in women's college basketball. Unfortunately, our schedules did not align, so I was not able to be on the interview. But I will be back with you after the interview for our mailbag. Also, Bruce, want to give you a plug. You put a lot of work into your mock draft that went up on The Athletic on Friday. It's not just a, here are the players, here are the teams. You talked to, how many coaches would you say you talked to for that? I mean, well over three dozen, probably close to 50. And really the whole point of my exercise in it is really to, you know, there's a lot, plenty of good draft analysts out there. What I am really trying to present to the audience is this is actually what the coaches who scouted and game plan for these guys, and they know their personnel. And it's not like, oh, this is what we see on film. No, these are the guys who actually, um, you know, were... <laughs> We're trying to, they know exactly what they're trying to do. And also like there's a few examples of this where you can see in this, in my story where coaches will point out like, yeah, they, they knew where their own deficiencies were 
in their team, whether it's like, yeah, our corners are kind of soft. We couldn't really do this against these people, against this guy. So I think that perspective is kind of unique for this story. And for, you know, if obviously you're an NFL fan, you get a sense of who your team may be getting. But also, I think if you're a college fan, it gives you a greater window into, you know, we all cover the sport and we all think we know a lot about who's really good and who isn't. And sometimes, you know, we're a little bit maybe late to the party on who really is. All right. So guys, you should go to the athletic, check that out. And now to our guest. Okay. And now we are pleased to be joined by our guest this week. She is Lindsay Schnell. She is a sports enterprise reporter for USA Today and somebody who has been a friend of the podcast and Stu and I for a long time. So Stu is not here right now because he's doing big shot stuff with the athletic and he's on zooms. And, um, so I wouldn't take a personal Lindsay. I never do when Stu isn't attentive, but thanks for joining us. I mean, I'm, I've been a loyal listener since day one, so I'm a little insulted, but I'll get over it. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, so as we said, you covered the biggest basketball event of the weekend and it was pretty amazing on Friday night with the South Carolina, Iowa game. And then the championship game, which was on ABC, I'll be honest, I did not realize it was happening. I came back from a from a youth football game and it was already over. I thought I was going to get in time for the pregame show. I did not expect it to be on in the afternoon. That was the LSU victory over Iowa. And this is an event that definitely has um, a lot of people still talking. And what I want to ask you, because you've written about this, uh, but also... Is it a good thing that the biggest takeaway is this story that feels like it's a lot bigger than just women's college basketball or college basketball? Yeah, I think so. I think it's awesome that um, we're a day after the championship game, a game that wasn't really that good of a game, to be honest. You know, LSU led almost the entire time and we're still talking about it. We're still talking about women's college basketball even though like the men's title game is tonight when we're recording this. I mean, we're talking about women's college basketball on a football podcast right now. I think that it's great. And I think it's really important that we're having this conversation. Obviously we're having a bigger conversation about Angel Reese, the LSU star and her taunting. I'm using air quotes. Um, Caitlin Clark, who's also a massive trash talker. And I think, I think it's great. I think it's fun. Um, I love it. I Right when I got home, I flew home from Dallas this morning, turned on ESPN, and they're talking about it on NBA Live. Um, they're t- I'm sure they're going to talk about it on NFL Live. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's awesome. Uh, can I ask you this question? And this is maybe a, an ignorant question, but, like, you know women's basketball better than anybody I know, but you've covered it for a long time, and you know – the people involved in this um i actually met caitlin caitlin clark this past year because she did something with our big noon crew and um so we you know earlier in the day she shot against matt and reggie and then later in the day in a big crowd because they were having both it was kind of like the equivalent i guess of midnight madness but they had both the men's team and the women's team at an event outside and she shot against matt and reggie again and um you know she was amazing and I followed her this year. But what I'm curious of is, so 
I'm sure everybody has seen it by now. The last, whatever it is, 15 seconds or whatever, 10 seconds of the game. Um, it was not only the John Cena thing, but it was also like pointing at her finger and, you know, like where the ring's going to be and everything else. Do you, is that, how big of a deal is this to the particulars being like, like, I feel like if Caitlin Clark is not apoplectic about, never mind losing, losing the game. I imagine that's the thing she's more ticked off about than was she disrespected? Was it payback for, um, and I don't know the woman on South Carolina who was like, they were backing way off her and there was like a dismissive, like Raven, Raven Johnson is her name. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, Raven Johnson hit like three, three pointers in the second half, right? Two or three. Yeah. Yeah. She missed them first, but yeah, she did hit a few. Yeah. So, but there was the dismissive wave. It's the kind of wave that honestly, I feel like any, like you would do that against your buddy in the, you know, like whatever, you know, in that thing, in that, so is it something that like like how are they reacting to it inside women's college basketball not never mind like all the blowhards who are on social media yeah well i think that's what's that's the piece about this that a lot of people don't understand caitlin clark doesn't care you know first of all iowa last night in the press conference was very gracious in general um you know the officiating was terrible on both ends of the game everyone would agree with that I'm not saying that LSU won because of the officiating by any stretch, but no one wanted to see the superstars, Caitlin Clark and Angel Reese on the bench. And they were both in foul trouble because of these ticky tack calls. Iowa was very gracious in talking about the officiating. We asked Caitlin about the, the taunting thing, the, you can't see me thing and the pointing at the ring finger, which I would just like to say that Draymond green does all the time. And Steph Curry does all the time. And, no one seems to care. And Caitlin Clark didn't care. I, th- I think she gets it. You know, she's a competitor. She's playing on a huge stage. And this is what big time high level sports are all about. So, you know, my parents actually asked me, do you think that they were just trying to like be the bigger person? And I said, no, I, I genuinely think they weren't bothered by it. Um, so it's it's everyone else who's outraged. Um, I don't think people who actually play women's college basketball care. And, you know, Caitlin Clark is a major shit talker herself. It's not just that South Carolina game. I watch Iowa a lot. Um, she's one of the premier trash talkers in college basketball, I would say, men or women. So I feel like this story, and I'm almost hesitant to go down this road, but I feel like we need to hits on two issues that people are extremely uncomfortable talking about. And it's also two issues that I feel like get talked at, but never really addressed. And one is from a racial component and the other is from actually a sex component yeah, or sexual component, just in a terms gender, of like, a gender, like agenda, a gender component, just because I feel like when mostly men start talking about women's sports, or women in general, they fall down the stairs and land on their face almost <laughs> all the time. So, I really like analogy. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like what we're talking about, I used this term before, and I feel like in some ways it's ignorance, maybe in a less, um, I feel like it's ignorance, but it's like ignorance maybe just out of being awkward as opposed to 
malice, right? Um, but I do think there's some opportunist going on that is going on because it's social media and you get some, first of all, I think you get a bunch of people who, I don't know if I would call them bad actors, but I think there's a lot of people who just love drama and they want to yeah. argue about stuff. And I think that is their shtick, whether it's the the debate shows that are that often feel like they are contrived but then there's like other elements of this which feel kind of like a little a little slimy and you're not sure where they go i think first of all yeah people love to be outraged to your point that's definitely um a factor here but so are race and gender um no one has a problem when caitlin clark who is white is talking trash when Haley van lith who plays for louisville is talking trash but when a black woman does it suddenly we have an issue um and you know angel reese gets it she's talked about this all season long that she doesn't fit into this narrative and to your point about you know it's not malice i think it's just we have this expectation we want women to fit into this particular box especially women who are in the public eye whether they're athletes or actresses or whatever and now we have women young women coming along who say I don't fit in this box. I don't fit this narrative. I don't care what you think. Kim Mulkey is like, you know, the perfect example of that. And she has players who really embody that too. Um, and, you know, I, it was interesting because I was having a conversation with my parents about this. You know, my parents, my dad coached forever. My mom used to be a big time referee, very, very deep in the sports world, specifically the college basketball world. And, um, my mom said something about, you know, it doesn't matter what your race is. Everyone can have integrity. And I said, I, no one is talking about integrity. <laughs> this is about people are holding Angel Reese to a double standard. Um, and, you know, she said last night, she said in post game, she repeated, you know, I like she's from Baltimore, you know, they talk trash all the time when they're playing out outside. You know, I did a story on Angel and her brother. She has a younger brother that plays at Maryland. His name's Julian. And she told me from a very young age, um, Julian has a really different personality than her. And when they played together on a boys team, Angel was talking trash then in like the fourth grade. And it was a problem because she was better than all the boys. That's just how she grew up. That's her culture. And she plays for a coach and in a program that embraces it. And I don't think anyone can argue with how good she is. I mean, she just set the NCAA record for double doubles in a single season with 34. Um, but that's just not what we're used to, even though part of why people love Caitlin Clark is the same reason her personality. That is a huge part of why Diana Taurasi has been, worshipped for a long time um but i just think people are caught off guard by it and sometimes i think people in general especially maybe more traditionalists mean uh say that they you know why can't why can't winning just be enough you know why do you have to tell people about it but we watch, we watch guys talk about it all the time so i don't see what the problem is question for you on kim mulkey yes um i do not know her i've followed her enough she has a incredibly strong big personality um Your statement <laughs> so it, what is interesting a little to me is like all these other um things that were tied to this story seem to fit in in the certain boxes that you could see for it to be a combustible social media story but not yeah. kim Mulkey. 
It's almost like if Kim Mulkey was not her coach, but she is her coach. That's the one that, to me, now she's got a big personality, but in terms of like how people tend to portray this from who goes into which corner, what's yeah. been interesting to me a little bit in this story, and this is now I'm going way off our college football podcast, but you, you know, you have some per- certain people who've weighed in who don't necessarily line up with where they typically are, where they're shouting at the certain people and, and are getting, are getting slammed in certain corners from it. And it's gotten, um, it's gotten, it's gotten very unwieldy. It's gotten very, very interesting in that regard. Uh, but I do want you to, I want to ask like, how is like Kim Mulkey and I'm not blaming anybody on I'm just saying, I'm curious is, is, She's, you know, this is her player. This is her team. She's done an amazing job to turn that program into a national champion so fast. Yeah. Um, how would how does she handle, you know, her, one of her star players on the biggest stage being ca- being shown in this cast in the flight or being in the target of this? I mean, I think that the important thing to understand is that Angel Reese probably wouldn't do this in any other program. Kim Mulkey really embraces kids with big personalities, kids who have an edge. She's not scared to coach them. Um, after LSU upset South, excuse me, after LSU beat Virginia Tech, came back in the semifinal, I walked around um, the concourse and talked to a bunch of coaches I know. And I said, you know, what makes Kim such a good coach? She has had a lot of success, and Virginia Tech was really good. And I do think that um, Kim is underrated as an X's and O's coach. She's very, very good strategically. And another coach said to me, you know, she'll take the kids that no one else will. She'll take the kids that other coaches might label problems. And so I think that, you know, Kim doesn't care what people say about Angel. She's going to defend her players. She always does. You know, dating back to Brittany Griner, she defended Brittany Griner for a long time when she was at Baylor. But what she really talks to her kids about is like, you need to be true to who you are. You don't need to listen to outside trolls. You don't need to listen to social media, you know? And so I think that just like Kim, when, so someone, it might've been me asked Angel Reese in post game about the, the taunting or whatever. And, um, as she was giving this great answer about, you know, I'm going to stay true to me. I don't fit in the narrative. This is for girls who look like me because she wants young black women to know it's okay to be unapologetic. Um, Kim Mulkey leaned over to Alexis Morris and goes, what did she do? So it's like, she's kind of unaware. Um, She's because what she's telling Angel Reese to do is go rebound and play defense. And Angel did that and won her a national championship. So I definitely think that Kim, to your point, like that's just like one other factor. People don't like Kim Mulkey. Um, she's a very polarizing figure. She complicated. Yeah, she's complicated. She's a complex person. A lot of people are. You know, another coach said to me, "There is no one in women's basketball who you will talk to who knows she knows every single coach's spouse. She knows every single coach's kid's name." You know, when she plays you, she walks up to you. Bruce, how are you? How's Christy doing? How are Ben and Riley? What's the latest with them? And her players love her. Like, yeah, her and Griner had a very public falling out. 
but there were tons of former Baylor players, former Louisiana Tech players, because she was a law tech assistant for a long time, and then LSU kids from last year hanging out. And another reporter said that um, there were a lot of Baylor players in the LSU locker room uh, late Sunday night, and that they didn't want to leave. And they told reporters, like, we feel like we're part of this team too because of how Kim has built this program. And the, and when the players come in to post game, they love Kim. They would run, they would walk through fire for her. And, you know, whether or not you like her, she's a great motivator. <laughs> her kids play really hard. But that's definitely, she's easy to dislike and she doesn't care if you dislike her. So that is also a factor in this whole conversation. Why is this the one sport where college is more popular than it's pro league? Man, I think this is such a good question. Um, I think the biggest thing is that the WNBA plays in the summer and that's really challenging. Um, I love women's basketball and I can think of 50 things I would rather do than go sit in a gym in Las Vegas in the middle of July and watch a game. Um, so I think that that is a really, really big factor. The W hasn't been around for that long. And for a long time, the only women's players that most people knew were coming out of UConn or Tennessee. And so if those players weren't in the league, like the league was populated by people that just like were never on ESPN, who you had never heard of, that's really changed in the last few years. Also these brands in college, sports like maybe you don't care about women's basketball but you went to lsu so you're gonna turn the game on um and that was something that someone brought up when we were out to dinner one night this week we were talking about what what kim Mulkey has built at lsu in just two years with nine newcomers this year you know she worked the transfer portal hard um that it was so different than what she had at, at baylor like it took a lot longer for people to really build that fan base. And someone said, yeah, but think of the Baylor world is a lot smaller. That's just a smaller school, smaller fan base, smaller alumni base. LSU is the only show in town, you know, and they support, you know, this, cause you've spent a lot of time there. It's not just football. Like they give great For baseball. Support. Yeah. Like baseball, Alex Redman's a big deal because he was a great baseball player. Yeah. It's track and field. Track is, yeah. They care about, being better than other teams in every sport. So you have a lot of star power. And so what does this mean for the sport? You know, like, you know, the backdrop of having what this means for Iowa basketball is a huge deal, obviously. Um, now people know they're paying attention. I'm not saying no one was paying attention before because people were paying attention. Yeah. But now, yeah. You've, you brought in, a bunch of other people who I imagine are going to stay. Yeah. Um, I mean, first of all, it'll be interesting to see what our WNBA numbers like uh, this, uh, this coming season in terms of viewership. But then, you know, a lot of times we watch men have incredible tournament runs throughout the NCAA tournament and they get generate all these new fans of their particular, their individual game. And then they go to the NBA well, Caitlin Clark's coming back to Iowa next year. Angel Reese is going back to LSU next year. Paige Beckers is going to be healthy at UConn, hopefully. Cameron Brink is coming back to Stanford. 
Um, and there's there's a lot of other players. Elizabeth Kitley just announced she's going to come back for her COVID year. Uh, South Carolina has, is stacked still. Um, I think that it's going to more people. It's going to be more in demand. Now, here's what's wild, and here's how this all comes full circle. Because of the Big Ten new TV contract, Caitlin Clark isn't really going to be on ESPN, as I understand it, unless she plays in a non-conference game, not at home. Otherwise, she's going to be on the Big Ten Network, FS1, NBC, and CBS. Are those the? Yeah, those are the partners. Yeah, so that's going to be a little different. But I think I think it's huge for the game. And I, what I hope is that people and Stu, who's not here, is a perfect example of this. I hope people say, what is women's basketball like in my corner of the world? And go support. Stu has taken his daughter to a couple of Stanford games. You know, maybe he'll go to a few more. Maybe maybe you will take Ben and Riley to, do you live closer to UCLA or USC? USC. Probably it's easier to get to USC. Okay. Maybe you'll take them to, I mean, USC signed. Yeah, the, your, buddy, your buddy's the coach there. Maybe she can Zigali, go. Zigali, my girl. I mean, and they signed the number one player in the country, Juju Watkins, you know? And, and Riley already has a USC cheerleaders outfit, right? This is. If it's she did, she would throw it in the trash. That girl, was <laughs> <laughs> and not because it's USC, just because it's the cheerleader thing. Um, okay, Lindsay, I feel like we kept you too long, um, but thank you for being flexible on our schedule. Of course, right. thank you. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with twenty four seven U.S. based live customer service from Discover. Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods.
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, it's mailbag time, Bruce. As always, our listeners, you can send emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Stu, let me start. Uh, This question that I I got my attention was from Eric in Bozeman, Montana. Hey, guys, in the time you've been covering the sport, what is the best play you remember an individual player making? A few to consider? Cam Newton's long run against LSU, Reggie Bush's long touchdown versus Fresno State, Jadavian Clowney's tackle and fumble recovery versus Michigan. All good options. Stu, what comes to mind for you? Vincent Smith's helmet getting popped off by Jadavian Clowney is the the first thing that um, comes to mind. So I was actually at the Cam Newton LSU game. That run was incredible. Obviously, I remember Reggie Bush's touchdown. So I... I don't think it's reasonable to expect somebody to narrow it down to one play, but I'll give you a few. The LaVar Arrington leap uh, over, I think they're playing Illinois. I don't remember who they were playing, but he leaped over the entire line of scrimmage, timed the snap and leaped over the entire line of scrimmage to tackle the running back. Um, I think you were there with me for this one, the 2001 uh, Roy Williams. Red River game. Yeah, uh, Chris Sims, Red River game where he came off a of blitz and and um and and just basically won the game right with that play well similar a little bit similar to the lavar leap not that he timed the snap but just he went flying through the air made a great play and then also that changed the game um hey here's one from i think that same season you know everybody talks about the 2001 miami team uh, being so dominant, but they did have one very close call against BC until uh, an interception. What was the name of that defensive lineman? Matt Walters. Yeah, this big lumbering defensive lineman starts running with it, and Ed Reed says, "Hey, flip it to me," and takes it the rest of the way. Matt Walters actually wasn't a he wasn't a you know by defensive lineman centers not exactly big or lumbering, but point taken. Um, you know, for me, one of the plays I remember was a Johnny Manziel play, and it was actually in their Louisiana Tech game, which was a wild game. It wasn't even an offensive play. Christian Michaels, or you know, running back, he's in the red zone. He gets a handoff near the goal line. He fumbles. Louisiana Tech recovers. There's a convoy of guys almost getting, you know, halfway to getting home for 100 yards. Johnny Manziel tracks down the ball carrier, strips him, the ball pops loose, ends up in the hands of another uh, Louisiana Tech player, and Johnny Manziel tackles him. There's an amazing uh, effort by him to make that play. The Reggie Bush play is insane. We've watched it in this house probably a hundred times in the last couple of months just because, you know, my son's just kind of in awe of some of the stuff he could do. So that fits. Um you know, those are a couple of the ones like that really kind of there's a Michael Vick run that he makes where like 
you know, it's an insane, I want to say it's like a 75 yard scramble where you look at it and you go, okay, Michael, D- Michael Vick is like the freakiest player who probably we've ever seen. You kind of, when you watch it again, you're reminded of just what a remarkable talent he was. Um, that was a game. Is that the game where they were, it was a close game and then he made that, he busted it open on that run down the sideline. I got to look back at it because I'm trying to remember who it was against now. It was a big East game. Um, anyway, we could probably go back to any number of, uh, ridiculous plays by him. All right. It's funny that we're all, we're all, we're both thinking like ancient history. There's gotta be some more recent craziness. There's so many one-handed catches now. It's hard to narrow that down to what's your favorite all-time one-handed catch. Um, Denard Robinson was a highlight reel. I don't have a particular like specific one that's standing out. One of the players that, that one of the things that came to mind, and it's another one I watched a lot with my kid is, is we're looking at spin moves and Braxton Miller's run when he switched positions from quarterback to receiver, their opening game against Virginia Tech. There is a spin move that's going at warp speed where he makes it around the 40 and it's just an insane athletic feat. Um, one of the more, more remarkable individual moves that, that I can think of. Um, you know, you know, it's weird. This is, again, you're talking about recency. DTR had a game against Washington where he did three, like, freaky things. The first, uh, maybe it wasn't the first. It was one of the one, one of the three where it was probably the most impactful play. There's a batted ball, and he strips the defensive lineman. But then there's a run he makes at the goal line where he just freezes two guys and just kind of. I remember that, yeah. You know, like. He had the hurdle in his one of the games that we had um, when they played USC, and I think they beat him like sixty-six to thirty or something like that, where he just effortlessly hurdled a, a USC player right at the goal line. I mean, he he did a lot of for being a guy who's probably not going to go in the first four or five rounds. He has quite a highlight, you know, reel from what he did with UCLA. I think Lamar Jackson's iconic play was the. Uh hurdle into the end zone against Syracuse. Yeah. You remember that? Definitely, yeah, I do remember that. I feel like that was a Friday night game. It was a Friday night game and it was like the second game of the season. It was the moment where you were like, oh, because I he didn't go into the season as a Heisman candidate. Like, oh, this, this guy is, is special. So again, like I can't narrow it down to one, but hopefully, hopefully we gave you some good samplings there. And then I'm sure you guys are going to email the audible pod at gmail.com with all of your own nominations. And Bruce and I are going to go, ah, I can't believe I forgot that one. Yes. All right. Ben in Newport news, Virginia, Bruce's excellent article on first year head coaches had me thinking about a category of coaches that are more fascinating to me than the Scott Frost types that don't work out. It's those who start off great, exceed expectations, see an immediate improvement in year one over the previous staff's record only to see years two through four either regress or plateau. Off the top of my head, Scott Satterfield at Louisville, Justin Fuente at Virginia Tech, and Brady Hoke at Michigan are all prominent examples that come to mind. Are these isolated situations, or is there something that leads to a coach being able to immediately improve a program in year one, but not being able to sustain that? You know, I thank you for the kind words on that, Ben. I think some of the stuff there is that, Kind of, you know, I got into this story and it got into a little of this in the story, you know, where you go, certainly Ed Ogeron, uh, 
time at Ole Miss. And then Houston Nutt comes in, does really well, goes to back-to-back Cotton Bowls with his players. And really, because he was a lot looser than what Ed was at that time, the players really responded well to it. And I think that that, that's the kind of dynamic that can work. But eventually, you know, it kind of either the locker room just doesn't respond well or things get sloppy and it just kind of ends up in a different place, but probably kind of back where, you know, to the level you didn't want. Um, You know, there's a few that came to mind at this. Certainly, you know, I wondered, Dan Mullen had had a couple of really strong seasons when he got back to Florida and then the thing just imploded, right? And it was just kind of got like toxic at that point. And you wonder, you know, is it just, does it come back to recruiting? Does it come back to like the culture you create or or don't create? I think that was a big part of it. Um, I think that it, it's it's probably too simplistic. I know there are probably more complicated answers and it varies case by case, but obviously it's got to come down first and foremost to recruiting because that first year you're basically inheriting somebody else's team and maybe that team. And by the way, I know this is different now with post transfer portal, but the guys he's mentioning in particular, you're basically taking somebody else's team and maybe those guys were close, but not quite. Uh, or hadn't been developed yet, or maybe misidentified which position they're best at, nor they just weren't in the right scheme, right? So it's like, okay, congratulations, you took somebody else's players and made them better. Then you got to bring in your own. And so if it starts going downhill, and especially, you know, doesn't get her better by the third or fourth year, then I don't think you recruited very well. Yeah, um, one of the one of the ones, and I think this could be, an, you know, sets up interesting is Mel Tucker this you know the second year he gets it going where they have a top 10 season um i mean they go 11 and 2 and you know then all of a sudden it's kind of the year you know what's tricky is not only did he take over in his first year was a covid year but also when he left cu to go there he really you know left you know he got the job late so it was a scramble to kind of pull things together now look i I think Mel Tucker is a really good coach just from my experience of of covering him pretty closely at CU and being around his program and thinking what, you know, having a feel for what he's about, but that is a really, really top tough division, especially it's top heavy. And it's a much harder job now, I think than it was when he took it because Jim Harbaugh has flipped Michigan, you know, as we're, you know, not only did they have back-to-back playoff seasons, this will be the most talented team Harbaugh has had yet. And now they're recruiting at a different level. I mean, just recently they got, you know, a, a, you know, high four, if not low five star, depending on who you listen to quarterback commit. And there's just a lot of momentum for that program. And that's your arch rival. So I think it's, you know, like I'd ask you, what's your expectation of where Michigan State's headed with Mel Tucker? Was it flash in the pan one year? Or do you think that he will have them do you think that will be the only top 10 season he has in, in East Lansing? I would, I don't think, I, I would think, I don't know if it'll be this year, but I would think he can get them back in the top 10 because Mark D'Antonio had them in the top 10 kind of frequently. Like Michigan State, this is not like Mel Tucker took over Maryland and now he's got to figure out how to compete with, you know, the bigger programs. Like they have had, they have had more than their share of wins in the last 10, 12 years over the Michigans and the Penn States and not as often against Ohio state, but a couple of times they've Michigan they is much different now than they were. Yeah. Uh, Mark D'Antonio was there though. 
They are, but even early Harbaugh years, you remember that stat would get thrown out there about his record against Michigan State, Harbaugh's record against Michigan State. So he's got a lot to work with. They have a tremendous amount invested in him. I do think it'll be interesting to see if his strategy around the portal evolves a little bit. I mean, everybody's using it, so it's not like he's unique in that regard, but it does seem like they're kind of living and dying by it right now. Um, so, but look, if he coaches for another few years and never gets back to the, you know, that turns out to be, uh, you know, a, a, a mirage, then you would lump him in with some of these other coaches that he just mentioned. All right, Stu, this is a little bit of a curveball question. Uh, it is from Brian Black. Hey, Bruce and Stu, on your past podcast, you've met, you've, Two have mentioned sports information directors, SIDs. What exactly do SIDs do? What makes a good SID? And who are some notable SIDs who have stood out to you in your time covering college football? So an SID is basically the media relations person for the football program, but the job has changed considerably over the years. I mean, I've never asked anybody like where that term originated, but in my mind, when I picture what a SID would have been like, like Bino Cook was an SID you know, back at Pitt back in the day. Um, it was when you really needed to literally like fax the stats to the local newspaper, right? Like a lot of actually like getting the information out. I don't think lining up interviews was as big a part of it because it was just kind of wide open. Um, there was a time when you just reporters just like covering a high school team, go to, go to practice, talk to the coach and players afterward. Now it's very controlled depending on in particular on, on who the coach is, but if you were to ask an SID today what their job is, I mean, what it, you know, first of all, if you're in a conference with a conference TV network, that has generated an entirely new set of demands and everyday demands. Um, social media is a big part of it, even though they do have people in the athletic departments devoted to that. Obviously, you know, what you're what are we getting out on social media goes kind of hand in hand with what is our media relations strategy. Um, so, but yeah, like, you know, I think, I think you and I would agree. I mean, even in our time covering it, that we've seen not just the, the, the job change, but like the profile of the kind of person, like we, we know, we still have a lot of people in that business we've known for 20 years. We're still doing the same job, but there's also, I feel like the, the kind of skill set of the people they're hiring is starting to change as well. And so much of it has to do with, I feel like they have to cater, as you said, to TV. That's where a lot of the visibility comes from. And a lot of the, the job can be managed in-house in terms of how they manage their message. And, and they're really so dependent, I think, on how accommodating their head coach is. Right. That's, you know, like that can determine how good the SID he or she is in that role, because sometimes they have a really thankless job if their head coach doesn't want to do what, you know, there's a conflict there the power dynamic has just flipped, right? I think in the old days, the, the SIDs told the coaches and the players, Hey, you're going to do this interview at this time. And now just to give an example, um, there are times when I call an SID, Hey, I've got this story idea I want to do. I need to talk to your freshman quarterback or something, you know, so, and like he has to go and get permission from the coach to let me interview that player and every single time a request like that comes in that's how controlling some of these guys are as always send your questions to the audible pod at gmail.com and we'll see you next time mm -hmm.